In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In many modern Western democracies, individualism reigns supreme. The goal of life is to be a man who marches to the beat of his own drummer and is unencumbered by others. And individuals who prefer tribalism or group belonging are either looked at with suspicion or disdain. But what if our quest for hyper-individualism is actually making us miserable? And what if belonging to a tight-knit group that requires loyalty and self-sacrifice is the key to fulfilling fulfilled and holy human? Well, that's the argument my guest makes in his latest book. His name is Sebastian Younger. You may have read his account of being embedded with an army platoon serving in Afghanistan in his must-read book, War, or seen his visceral documentary about the battles in the Korangal Valley called Restrepo. In his latest book, Tribe, Younger uses his firsthand experience as a war reporter as a starting point in exploring the vital human need to belonging to a group. In today's show, Sebastian and I discuss how humans are wired for tribalism, how males bond, and whether or not it's possible to recapture tribe in a large and prosperous society. Must listen, a lot of great insights from this uh, guy. After the show, check out the show notes at aom.is slash younger uh, for links to resources we mentioned throughout the show so you can delve deeper into this topic. All right, Sebastian Younger, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, so your latest book is called Tribe. Um, but I think for people to understand the argument you're trying to make in it, uh, I think they need to know a bit about the background of your previous work. Uh, in 2007, 2008, you were on assignment for Vanity Fair in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan, uh, where you spent a year with a U.S. platoon, a remote outpost called Restrepo. And that's where your film, your documentary Restrepo came from, and your uh, book War came from that assignment. I'm curious, what did you learn about war that surprised you or would surprise most civilians from your work in the Korangal Valley? Probably the most surprising thing for me about war in that context was how the experience of fear is diminished when you're in a group. Um, how your central concern can shift from yourself to others. Uh, I studied anthropology in college, and that started to make sense to me. There, there, in our in our evolutionary past, there really was no individual survival outside of group survival. So one very good way of promoting your own survival, your own interests, is to actually devote yourself to the welfare of the group. It actually makes great evolutionary sense. And and I got to experience that sort of in the flesh, as it were, in in real time out of Restrepo with this platoon. Um, I um, I should say that the end result of, of that very intense human bond that's created in combat is that often men miss combat. I, I say men because it was all men in the platoon I was with. Um, often men miss combat. What they're sometimes mistaken for is missing violence. 
and perhaps some of them do, I don't know, but I think the, the thing that is really compelling uh, that they really do miss when they finally get home is that very close bond. It's not uh, reproducible in civilian society because there's no need for it, and it's something that, that they can have a great longing for, actually, and my, um, you know, a lot of my book has been, a lot of my work has been sort of focused on that, that sort of strange irony of combat. Right. Um, yeah, and, and going to that point, you know, the, the platoon you're embedded was all male, and they're taking part in a traditionally all male activity. I'm curious. I mean, the the, the bond was really intense. Um, but how did the, the the dynamic between the men in this platoon? How did it differ from what you may have observed in civilian men, and just in your working life, or just in your personal life as well? Well, I, you know, I think I think men have a, a great capacity for functioning in groups. Um, I think they like functioning in groups. I think they like being part of a hierarchy, part of a group dynamic, uh, with a shared task, a group task. I, you know, I think that all that plays to a particular kind of male wiring. I, I, I just read recently in an academic paper um, that they took a group of men, had them do a task together, and then gave them an enemy, which I think probably was a rival team in the case of this experiment, gave them an, quote, enemy, and then they were the, the, the group, the individuals in the group were immediately collaborated uh, much more effectively, became much more tightly bonded as soon as they had an enemy. Uh, they took a group of women, did the same thing, and having an enemy group did not increase the um, level of cooperation between the women in the women's group. So there, there seems to be real differences between men and women in terms of how they uh, deal with each other in a group. Um, and the thing about civilian society is that there are no enemies. Like So, so groups of men are not sort of forced into coalitions uh, by necessity. And that's, of course, a wonderful thing. I mean, no one needs another enemy. But on the other hand, because of our evolutionary past, we are wired for that, and some part of the male psyche, and maybe you could say the human psyche, uh, goes underutilized in a situation of great stability and safety. Right. And that kind of goes against the sort of the popular idea that men are sort of loners and, you know, lone alpha wolves. Men actually like to be working together in a group. I mean, I think sometimes women in pair bonds, women experience men as sort of loners because um, the men aren't, you know, typically are not actually sharing their feelings. And um, I, I think women sort of decode that as a kind of insular individualism uh, when, in fact, many men actually, many men like that have this sort of other life, this sort of other side of their life where they're actively responding to groups of men. Um, in a way that might surprise the woman, actually. But they're not mis- responding to groups of men where everyone's sharing their feelings. The, the, the group is uh, close and functional uh, and tightly bonded precisely because people are the men are not sharing their feelings. I mean, sort of, quote, oversharing of one's feelings, when it, one's inner life, actually can get in the way of healthy relations uh, in some cases, and certainly for men. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, did the bond that you saw between the men in the platoon that you were working with in the Korangal Valley, was that what planted the seed for your latest book, Tribe? I actually, I've been thinking about Tribe since my early 20s in some ways. I had a, a, an uncle figure, a kind of mentor figure named Ellis, who was half Lakota Sioux, half Apache. And he was born, literally born on a wagon in 1929 during the Depression. And 
I remember when I was a kid, when I was young, him saying to me, you know, the, along the history of the frontier in this country, the white people were always running off to join the Indians. But the Indians never ran off to join the white people. And I thought about that my whole life. And um, that was even the case, uh, he told me that was even the case with white captives of the Indians who were adopted into Indian families in tribal societies and when given the chance to come home by a peace treaty or what have you, um, that, that, that often these these adopted uh, adopted white members of Indian families didn't want to did not want to go back to quote civilization and and as Alice pointed out you, people go native but they don't go civilized we don't have any phrase for that and um, so that stayed in my mind my whole life and then I started to encounter soldiers who didn't want to go back to America they wanted to stay you know in combat and in affiliation with one another in Afghanistan and it reminded me of what Alice said. And, you know, my book, Tribe, is not about soldiers, and it's really not about PTSD. Right. In my third chapter, I use those topics as a way to illuminate the strengths and failings of modern society. When you have people who come from modern society, come from America, go overseas and experience life in a platoon in combat, they're basically experiencing a recreation of our evolutionary past. We evolved to live in groups of 30, 40, 50 people. I mean, that's the best guess in terms of our hominid ancestors, of what life was like for hundreds of thousands of years. They experienced that very close ancient human affiliative group experience. And then they come back to our society. What they see when they return is a great way of seeing our society with fresh eyes from a fresh perspective. And that's how I use soldiers and PTSD as a way to sort of like do a, an X-ray, as it were, of modern society and what its shortcomings are, and and for that matter, what its what its strengths are. So, I mean, there's a popular idea, and I think this comes from, you know, uh, a very modern worldview, and we're so in, deeply embedded in, in in modern society. We have this idea that if there a disaster strikes, war strikes everyone's going to return to the sort of Hobbesian every man for himself dystopia where people are going to be pillaging and, you know, the, the whole, you know, fantasy, apocalyptic fantasies are going to come life. But you argue that's not actually the case. I mean, what's the usual human response when disaster strikes? Well, I, I, if, if adversity and hardship and danger produced our worst human behaviors, we wouldn't exist as a species. I mean, we, we evolved for 2 million years. Um, as a social species in a very harsh, dangerous environment, and if an attack by a lion or a rival tribe or a famine or an earthquake or what have you, if that produced antisocial behavior where every person fended for themselves, keep in mind we're a species where group survival is the only survival. And if, it, if adversity produced individualization, we would, have, we would not have survived. We would not exist as a species. So as an evolutionary principle, you can just assume that adversity brings out our higher human virtues rather than our lower human virtues. And um, so if you look at the historical record, that's absolutely the case. I mean, what happened in London during the Blitz? I mean, 30,000 people were killed during the bombing, German bombing campaign over the course of six months. Um, and if anything, uh, London society became more egalitarian, more tightly bonded, more collaborative, more cooperative. It did not descend into riots and mayhem and looting. Um, even New Orleans, where there was supposedly all this looting, I mean, there was a very small amount of that. It was people, hungry people looking for food. Um, and it was not a kind of um, widespread cashing in on the chaos 
that, that was that was all really kind of urban myth. And actually, the the uh, violent crime rate fell after Hurricane Katrina. Likewise, in New York City after 9/11, all this antisocial behavior declined. Uh, the suicide rate went down. The violent crime rate went down in New York after 9/11. So humans respond extremely well to catastrophe. Uh, they don't turn on each other. They actually turn to each other for support and collaboration and and um, uh, and a kind of shared ethos of group survival. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. 
This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So, I mean, I'm curious. I mean, so there's this great power that comes with tribe, feeling you belong to this tight knit group. But, it, you know, the thing I read, the feeling I got as I read your book, it seems like we can only get this power whenever we're facing some sort of very visceral challenge, right? We at war, natural disaster. So, I'm curious, I mean, how do we capture the power of tribe? when we live in a time of prosperity and peace and relative peace today? Um, well, we, we, we basically have evolved in this situation, which is one of great, great fortune. I mean, we're, we're very, very lucky human beings to live in an era of um, transporta- mass transportation and anesthesia. And if you have surgery, you get anesthesia. And whatever. I mean, I, I mean, the list goes on and on of our of our blessings. But what you're kind of asking, uh, how do we have it all? How can we have the blessings of right. this modern society and the societal bonding and societal strength of um, a, uh, of a of a society that's facing great adversity and 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 bonding together because of that? I, I don't know that we can. I mean, it it, it um it may not be possible. Um, we're not going to dismantle the suburbs and start living in communal groups of 30 or 40 people. That's not happening. Um, I think you could, uh, I mean, just as a thought experiment, sure. you know, if you banned the car, if you banned the automobile, it would force people like the Amish do actually, it forced people to live within walking distance of their home. And, um, the Amish, because they do not drive, they ride horses, which is also a limited transportation. Um, they have very low rates of, of suicide and, and depression. Um, because they're because they're forced to live in communal groups. So, you know, one thing you could do is ban the car. Um, that's probably not going to happen either. So how do we keep exactly our same level of luxury and regain this sort of communal warmth and closeness? Um, I don't know. I, it, 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 um, I think it has to be a conscious, deliberate effort to look around you in the community that you live in, not the workplace, uh, not your rugby, you know, intramural rugby team or whatever. All these, all those, all those are great opportunities for human connection. But when you talk about community, you're talking about the people you can see from your front porch. You're talking about the people literally around you. And chances are you don't know half the people around you. I, I heard about a guy, an author actually, who lived in a neighborhood somewhere, I don't know where, and um, someone was um, murdered in the neighborhood. And he was so appalled at the lack of communal reaction to this tragedy that he spent a year sleeping in the homes of everyone in his neighborhood. I mean, with their permission, with their consent, obviously. He just made himself a part of that family for a night. And he went around the entire community sleeping in everyone's homes trying to bond people together. 
um, I think it's going to take a, a deliberate conscious act uh, to produce that those kinds of effects within communities that are obviously um, very dispersed and fragmented and not inward looking. And at the other end of the spectrum, at the sort of macro level, I think we have to have a um, a, a changed national consciousness of what it means to be part of a nation. Um, when you, I've done this. If you ask a room full of people, what do you owe your country? All you get is blank stares. No one has any idea what they owe this incredible entity that we all belong to, you know, other than their taxes. Uh, for most of human history, if you ask, <laughs> if you ask someone, um, what they owed their, um, their group, their people, their tribe, they would have an immediate answer. And they would probably say, well, circumstances required, I owe them my life. And, um, and that's something that's disappeared from the national conversation. And I think in order to feel like we belong to something, we have to renew that conversation and figure out what does it mean to be part of a country, part of a nation? What, what, what are the duties? We all know the benefits. What are the duties? Well, so I'm curious, I mean, we talk about how it disappears. I mean, what happened? Was it this sort of just a byproduct of modernity? I mean, it's just sort of these macro forces that, you know, economics, technology, that just sort of eroded that sense of community and belonging? Well, I think evolution has produced two opposing reactions in us. Um, one is the impulse towards uh, community, because that 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 increases our survival, our survival rate, our survival chances. Um, the other impulse, which I think is also a product of our evolution, is to maximize of our maximize our individual benefit. Um, so when modern society evolved, when it developed in the last few hundred years, um, it produced enough enough capital, enough um, technology produced enough, took away the sort of physical burdens of actual survival to the point where we do not correctly we do we we do not think we need to participate in the public good in order to ourselves physically survive. You don't literally need your neighbors, the people you can see from your bedroom window. You don't literally need them in order to put food on the table tonight, uh, in order to defend yourselves from uh, the neighborhood across the river that might attack you, in order to defend yourselves from a predator that might wander into camp. You don't literally need those people. So there's no reason to contribute to the public good because there's no, you don't, you don't need the public good in order to survive. So what that means is that the the other evolutionary imperative of maximizing individual benefit, that's the only thing left standing, right? That actually works in a capitalist society. That works extremely well. Um, and, and that's the ethos that we all end up pursuing. But there's this gaping hole in our psyches um, that left left by the loss of community. Yeah. And uh, I mean, some of those gaping holes, I mean, you, you know, make the case that a lot of the social illness or not social illness, mental illness, depression, uh, even some of like the mass shootings that we've been seeing that proliferating in the past, you know, 25 years might be a result of this lack of tribe in our life. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it, the cause and effect is hard to determine in a society that's this complex, but, um, but we do know that as wealth goes up in a society, modernity tends to go up. Um, and that brings with it an elevated suicide rate. So as wealth goes up in a society, the suicide rate goes up, not down. The depression rate goes up, not down. As income disparity increases, uh, anxiety disorders 
increase in the population. Um, one very interesting statistic from the Blitz in London was that the, the, the government was prepared for mass psychiatric casualties during the Blitz. And uh, understandably, I mean, here's a civilian population that's getting, you know, bombed into the Stone Age by a, by a modern air force. And um, to their surprise, the, um, to the surprise of the authorities, the admissions to psych wards went down during the Blitz in London. You know, one official said, um, we have, he said, we have neurotics driving ambulances. You know, basically, when your community is being attacked or is under some kind of stress, um, everyone, everyone realizes that they're actually needed, that their people need them, like their community needs them, and that buffers people against their own psychological demons. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, I mean, Sebastian, I mean, this is there's a lot more we could dig into, um, and the book was fantastic. But where can people learn more about about it and the rest of your work? Well, my website is sebastianyounger.com, and it has obviously all my books, all my films uh, on there. Tribe is prominently displayed. Um, I have a, I have an idea for helping veterans return to society. Uh, called uh, a veterans town hall. Basically, you give on Veterans Day in every country, in every uh, town or city in this country, you open the town hall to um, to veterans to speak for ten minutes each. Veterans of any war, and we've done this. We even had a World War II veteran stand up. Uh, veterans of any war have the chance to stand up and speak for ten minutes to the community about war, what war felt like. It's not patriotism. It's not anti-war activism. It's just this is what it felt like to go to war for everybody, for you all in the room. And it's incredibly cathartic thing for the veterans, but it also gives the community a chance to feel like a community in the ancient tribal sense. And I think that if this idea spread enough, um, it might actually produce that at a sort of nationwide level. So on my website, SebastianYounger.com, there is a page for Veterans Town Hall. And it's very, the principles are simple. The guidelines are simple. You don't need a license. You don't need permission. You don't need anything. And you certainly don't need money to do this. You just have to um, convince the town manager to unlock the doors on Veterans Day. And you can do this yourselves. And it's a very, very powerful experience. I love that. Well, Sebastian Younger, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. My guest today was Sebastian Younger. His latest book is called Tribe. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Go check it out. And also make sure to check out his other work, uh, War. It's available on Amazon as well. And you can also watch his documentary, Restrepo. Uh, You can get that on Amazon.com too. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show and have got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Manly.